0: It is time for our Bible class to begin. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 18, and we always like to start with four fast facts. Paul delivered a powerful sermon in Athens affirming the reality of one God. He tied that to, and he testified of, The resurrection of Jesus Christ, warning of final judgment and calling upon sinners to repent. Let's refer to the map of the second missionary journey long enough to see where we are geographically from Athens to Corinth and Crea, Ephesus. I will promise you before the end of this class, we will encounter the most effective method in evangelism that will work anywhere. Be listening for that as we make our way now through Acts chapter 18. Listen, please, verses 1 through 17. We are in Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. As you saw on the map a few minutes ago, Luke reports travel from Athens to Corinth. Paul works in the tent-making trade with a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Paul continued to reason with people in the synagogues every Sabbath, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. Silas and Timothy, who had been in Macedonia, now joined Paul. There were Jews who opposed and reviled Paul, to which he gave response, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. More about that statement in my takeaways. The beginning of the church in Corinth is marked by verse 8, the last phrase. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Can I remind us, Corinth was a city of some three quarters of a million people. It was a leading city in the Roman Empire, a huge commercial center world-famous shipping location, a city for seafarers, maritime merchants, but also a place of paganism with a high cosmopolitan pride. Humanist intellectuals held power there. And so in the culture of Corinth, there would be from day to day sexual immorality, drunkenness, and other forms of immorality common and accepted in that area. Yet, in this place, the gospel was heard, and it says, We just read, many believed, and were baptized. There's now a church in Corinth. The Lord spoke directly to Paul. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. This may remind you of many statements from God to the prophets in the Old Testament. He would often say to them, do not be afraid, I am with you. God knew there were many people in Corinth who would hear and obey the gospel. For a year and a half, Paul lived in Corinth teaching the word of God. The Word of God is the divinely appointed means by which people learn about their sin, decide to come to Christ out of sin and into the kingdom and a part of a local group, cleansed and made ready for good works and eventually for heaven. Another round of opposition came from unbelieving Jews. This effort might have ended differently were it not for a wise man Galio. Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, was taken and beaten in front of the tribunal. Let's pause here and explore something briefly. We have what some might refer to as a textual problem or an alleged contradiction. In verse 8, Luke calls Crispus the ruler of the synagogue. In verse 6, it is Sosthenes. Uh, we dare not forget that as much as a year had passed, and Crispus surely resigned his post when the Christians began meeting at his home. Presumably, Sosthenes became his successor. We are not certain why they beat Sosthenes. Perhaps he too became a Christian. A man by this name is mentioned later as an associate with Paul. Let's move to Acts 18. 18 through 23. We're in Acts 18 still, and we're reading now from 18 down to 23. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Back to our map. This paragraph takes us from Corinth, setting sail from Syria with Priscilla and Aquila, to Sincrea, getting a haircut connected to a vow, more about that later, then to Ephesus, again reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, Caesarea, then to Antioch to greet the church. This concludes what is generally called the second missionary journey. Verse 23 says, After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. This begins as you see on the map, the third missionary journey. So we pulled up a new map above me there, the third missionary journey. And then we're in the final section of Acts 18, 24 through 28. Listen, please. Read along. Acts 18, 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent uh, eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So this introduces us to a new participant in the spread of the gospel, Apollos. It is said of him he was an eloquent man, more important than eloquence, competent in the scriptures. He was a good man. And what he knew, he spoke, but he knew only the baptism of John. It wasn't that Apollos was a deceitful false teacher. Rather, Apollos needed to be updated. You remember that Christian couple we met in the early part of the chapter, Aquila and Priscilla? They took Apollos aside and taught him or updated him. The work continued with Apollos going over to Achaia, doing good and powerful work there, refuting the Jews. That's Acts chapter 18. Next, the takeaways. Takeaways from Acts chapter 18. You can see them listed there on the slide. I'll go through them starting with this point. What's Paul doing for a year and a half in Corinth? He's teaching the word of God among them. Now, there are lots of other things that would have been enjoyable, interesting, profitable at some level, and had some value. Paul could have organized social programs and medical care and soup kitchens and educational institutions, community organizing, uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, political change efforts, on and on. But Paul had a singular focus, teaching the Word of God. That's how people, became Christians, responding to the word of God. That's how the local church came into existence. And that's what Paul will continue doing, teaching the word of God. Individuals can do those other things as need be, but the local church and Paul had this singular spiritual focus, teaching the word of God. Sometime later, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, When I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, this 1 Corinthians 2, 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is what they needed in Corinth. It is what we need in cities and communities and in this nation today. And this is what we do at Laurel Heights, preaching and teaching from the text of Scripture, centered in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Next in our takeaways, I want to commend the wisdom of Gallio, who was a government official who was determined to stay out of religious matters. He was determined to stay out of religious matters. I want to go back and read that section in Acts 18, 12 to 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge in these things. Now, isn't it refreshing that this man was wise beyond the times, recognizing that government ought to stay out of religious matters? We live in a time when there seems to be more and more intrusion by government and society into religion. There is pressure applied to churches, and that concerns us. Few in our government seem to have the wisdom of Gallio. Just a passing observation. Number three, Paul's haircut connected to the vow. I'll begin with two observations about that. Number one, there isn't any evidence that Paul asked anyone else to do this. He did not make his choice a requirement that he imposed on others. We need to be clear about that. No evidence Paul asked anyone else to do this. Two, This highlights what we may have already concluded from previous Bible study, that vows are voluntary. There is no uniform requirement in the New Testament of this or any other vow. Vows were personal commitments and choices made by individuals similar to fasting. Voluntary. Not a condition of salvation or a test of fellowship. About this particular vow, these were common among the Jews, usually in association with thankfulness for past blessing, such as Paul's safekeeping in Corinth. These also sometimes involved prayers for future blessings and safekeeping. This was an individual, voluntary act of Paul's own conscience, yet not required, of his companions are all christians let me add there is nothing wrong with an individual christian taking a vow today making a specific promise setting a specific goal for their spiritual welfare and relationship with god it falls into the category of individual liberty so long as so long as no law of god is broken in the matter and we do not bind our vows on others. It is an acceptable private practice that violates nothing in the New Testament. You can do that, I can do that, but we had better be serious about it. Don't take it lightly because God doesn't take it lightly. Number four, I want to spend a few minutes considering the example of Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, of course, it is refreshing to learn about, a good Christian couple, their work with Paul, their participation with him at some risk. But I want to concentrate on the help they graciously gave to Apollos. Consider what they didn't do about Apollos. They didn't shun him. They didn't tell everybody he was still preaching the baptism of John. They didn't heap harsh criticism on Apollos. They took him aside. That reflects such a good, wholesome attitude. It says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They gave him the additional information he needed. What could have been an ugly mess, another dispute, another obstacle in the work of the Lord, was handled wisely, righteously. And this ties in well with something I've said recently. When we approach people, we need to be certain that our approach conveys that we care. Remember, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. I think the case of Aquila and Priscilla with Apollos is a genuine example of how to approach people who are not rebellious or deceitful. They simply need more information. Now, let me bring this up. We're always looking for evangelistic methods. We talk a lot about that. We know that wherever we are, we are obligated to preach the same message Paul delivered, the gospel. But we're always looking for good approaches, methods, or tools that will be effective. Here in Acts 18, there is without any doubt the most effective evangelistic method That will work anywhere. There is nothing better. Personal contact. Personal contact. People like Aquila and Priscilla talking to somebody. In this case, Apollos. Teaching him the way of the Lord more perfectly. Tracks, websites, gospel meetings, uh, knocking on doors, radio, YouTube. These methods have a place. Have a good place In our work and in various places, methods may vary, but there's nothing better than people talking to people, personal contact, individual initiative. Talk to people who are not Christians. Do everything you can to take them to the Bible and teach them the way of the Lord more perfectly. It is an evangelistic method that doesn't cost anything. It has proven effective over and over And there is no question it is biblical. Apollos. Eloquence is the ability to use words in such a way people are inclined to listen and real communication occurs. Let me say that again. Eloquence is the ability to use words in such an effective way People are inclined to listen, and real communication occurs. Eloquence, uh, eloquence is not a particular accent. Eloquence is not theatrics or exaggerated drama. It is the combination of heart, voice, and words so that people are inclined to listen and learn. But without a message of substance, eloquence doesn't really help sinners. Sinners must hear the word of God. Eloquence just makes it easier for sinners to hear and understand and concentrate, but that eloquence is secondary to the substantial message that God would have us deliver. I believe God expects those who speak his word to use their best abilities their clearest voice, choice words to teach and to admonish. Forgive me for mispronouncing two or three words already in this YouTube. Number six, one more thing. Christians, especially new Christians, need much encouragement. Christians, new Christians especially, need So much encouragement, and I'm arriving now at verses 27 and 28. And when he had wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus Christians need to encourage one another there is a popular idea that once you are saved or born again everything is settled you're going to heaven no matter what just sit back and relax for the ride well the New Testament doesn't say that after baptism there is a lifetime of teaching nourishment activity growth and encouragement that is necessary to stay in fellowship with God and have a good hold on the hope of heaven. I think I have one more thing here I was going to talk about. Paul's statement in verse 6, Your blood be on your own heads. Before I conclude, let's talk about that for just a moment. Your blood be on your own heads. It is sometimes called Ezekiel's disclaimer of responsibility because the expression occurs in Ezekiel's prophecy. It simply means, I've told you the truth. If you refuse to respond to it, it is now your responsibility because I've handed you the message. I incur no guilt because I've delivered the message to you from God. Where this occurs, in Ezekiel, um, Acts 13, Acts 18, it is not a curse quickly uttered. It is not a phrase used in a frivolous way. It is something to punctuate responsibility. If we ever use this phrase or think in terms of a personal disclaimer of responsibility, we'd better make sure because this is a serious matter. What it means is, I've delivered the message. Now make sure you have. I have delivered the message. Now the responsibility transfers to the one listening to the message. No guilt incurs to the messenger if he's delivered the message correctly from God. Well, that's our study. Next time, we will be in Acts chapter 19. Thank you for being with us.